So um, uh, my talk this evening uh, is entitled Judging the Truth, Law and Moral Relativism. Thou shalt not judge. For our contemporary culture, especially for the typical university culture, this can be seen as the first and the, you might say the greatest commandment. It may be, in fact, on the contemporary university, the only commandment that he really has some kind of moral force, do not judge. The great sin of our age in the minds of many of our contemporaries is to be judgmental. You could even perhaps describe it as a kind of capital vice for post-modernity. In the background for such a kind of uh, attitude, a judgment about judgments, you might say, in the background behind such a judgment about judgments is an assumption or a conviction uh, sometimes unspoken, that moral judgments are arbitrary and subjective, and that they're not based on anything as objective as provable facts, public facts, and therefore, if they're acknowledged at all, if moral judgments are acknowledged at all, they should stay in the sphere of the private, interior, subjective convictions that they lack public standing. So uh, what I'd set out before us in this talk uh, is to address what we mean when we say that one is making a judgment. And in what sense being judgmental is a vice or a sin, and how this is related to the law and also to contemporary claims about truth, tolerance, and moral relativism. Okay, so there's a few parts here. First, we're gonna talk about judgments. Then the second major part of the talk is going to be about uh, relativism and how to think about that. So first, on judgments. If it's true that to be judgmental is a vice, if we just take for a moment that hypothesis, would that mean that every judgment we make is an act of vice? Well, even for someone who wants to avoid being judgmental, it seems that they wouldn't agree to that. They would say, well, you have to make some judgments, right? People mostly have uh, no problem with making scientific judgments, judgments about scientific truths. So these are truths that we presumably can know as valid in all places and at all times. Uh, and so, generally speaking, what I'm aiming to address in this talk is not a kind of universal philosophical skepticism. You can find that in some places. Somebody who's like a really radical uh, relativist who claims that we can't know any truth at all. You sometimes encounter people like that. But usually, most people that you will encounter on a contemporary university campus will accept that there are at least some scientific truths, some mathematical truths that we can know. So, how would Aquinas analyze this, or Aristotle? Actually, Aquinas follows Aristotle on this. Uh, Aquinas teaches that there are two principal acts of the mind. Now, I'm simplifying a little bit here, uh, but this is a little brief, you might say, philosophical uh, summary about how our mind works to know the truth. So the first uh, act of the mind is called simple apprehension, and that is a complicated name simply to express that you grasp what a thing is. 
So you encounter three dogs, Spot, Fido, Rover, and you apprehend that all three of them are dogs. So you are abstracting from these three beings the idea of dog. So that is really in your mind and you, and you are able to see that uh, you are getting that idea from these particular dogs. Then there is a second uh, dimension to the mind's act, uh, what the Thomist tradition calls judgment. So there's apprehension, and then there is judgment. Judgment involves joining and separating things. So in a sentence, you have a subject and a predicate. You learn that in you know, fourth grade. And so in a sentence, you are making affirmative or negative judgments about, say, the subject of the sentence. And judgments about whether it is true, whether it corresponds to reality. So, for example, to say, this dog is angry. That requires you to know what a dog is by the first act of the mind, simple apprehension. And what being angry is. Okay, that's also an act of apprehension. And then you join those two notions together, judging that this dog is angry. Okay, fairly clear, but Aquinas calls that an act of judgment. More fundamentally, you can make a judgment when you say that something exists. So dogs exist, unicorns do not, at least so far as I know. So that is a judgment. Now for a Thomist, this kind of judgment is one of the fundamental aspects of being a rational person. So to live the life of reason requires you to make judgments like that. And we're not talking about something extremely highfalutin here. We're talking about recognizing reality around us. That's what our mind is made to do, made to understand it in some way. And that calls for us to make certain judgments. No science would be possible if we could not make these kinds of basic judgments. Okay, but usually people who are talking about being judgmental are not worried about what I've just described. They're not worried about making judgments like that. They think maybe something else is going on when you make what might be called a moral judgment. So let's talk about that for a minute. And let's start with the law. So as uh, Nick mentioned in the introduction, I was a lawyer before I became a Dominican. So I've uh, worked in courtrooms and I've given some thought to how the law works. And I find it's a useful starting point for Americans because we love talking about the law, you know. Um, actually, I can give you a little inside info here. Uh, in a Dominican priory, so like where I live, um, you know, typically we do have a recreation room with a television uh, where on occasion you can go and, you know, we don't watch a lot of TV, but uh, if anybody's going to watch TV, they're probably watching Law & Order. Uh, it's like the favorite TV show of most most Dominicans. You know, it's like, give me the law, right? Okay, Americans love shows like that. Okay, so what are the kinds of judgments you find in the law? Okay, in a, in a trial, the goal of a trial in a courtroom is not just to have factual findings about what actually happened and then legal conclusions 
about what the law says about this or that uh, subject, but actually to combine these two things in what is technically called a judgment, a final judgment. That is a resolution of the matter as a whole, where you ascertain what actually happened and you apply the law to what you have determined actually happened. So it's what a judge issues at, an end, at the end of a trial. He issues a judgment, or she issues a judgment, and then an order of what must happen as a result of that judgment. And we could actually also talk about the law more generally, making judgments. So sometimes people will speak this way, the law judges this, the law judges that, that. Certainly, if you are a lawmaker, if you're a member of Congress, for example, and you are formulating laws, you're writing laws, a lawmaker inevitably is making a judgment about things, about what is good for our community, about what is bad for our community, in order to order the life of our community. So, okay, some people, their minds will immediately go to what our culture would consider to be like typical moral judgments. So usually when you talk about using morality in the law, people imagine uh, a, a preacher with a Bible thumping you over the head with it, right? You know, like pounding into you certain precepts about sexual morality. That's usually what people immediately think you're talking about. Uh, but actually, every law is making a judgment, and I would contend is making a moral judgment. So let's take a very neutral example. Think about environmental regulations. So uh, you have regulations about how, many, how much carbon emissions we should tolerate this year in the United States or as emitted by a particular industry. Now you might be tempted to think that this is a judgment justified by purely factual or scientific statements. Statements like high carbon emissions decrease air quality. You could just say, okay, that's a factual statement. Uh, but notice that within a statement like that, there is a judgment about what you should or should not do. So if you were to like lay out the justification for a law restricting carbon emissions, you would say something like this. Well, a healthy environment is a part of the common good, avoiding global warming, uh, having good air quality, etc. You could list the various uh, features of what we would consider to be a healthy environment. And the community as a whole should take responsibility for this good. And certain actions or activities harm the environment. They harm that good. And therefore, they should not be done. So the law should try to discourage those acts or even punishment, punish them. And other activities are helpful to the environment, and those are things that we should do and that we should encourage. Okay, in fact, that has the same structure, you might say, as a typical moral judgment, certainly seen from the perspective of St. Thomas Aquinas. And in fact, I would suggest that we do make moral judgments about polluters. Uh, so, you know, you, you're sort of a bad company if you're polluting a lot. You're not being a good steward of the, of the environment. If you don't recycle, you can feel bad about it. Uh, this actually, you know, now this is going back a ways, 
Um, when I uh, first went uh, to law school, I had been going to college in California where there was pretty aggressive uh, push for environmental responsibility and recycling. So every dorm room came equipped with a recycle bin as well as a trash bin. And like it just became so ingrained that you would put leftover paper in the recycle bin, you would put aluminum cans in the recycle bin. You would not think of putting those in the trash. So after four years of living that way, I then went off to law school on the East Coast. I went to Yale for law school. And there, in the dormitories, there was no recycling bin. So I'm like saving up my uh, crushed aluminum cans and looking for the bin to put them in. But there, there was no bin in the dormitory. I mean, they had no recycling program. And I felt, so that meant I had to throw them in the trash. And I felt so guilty. I felt like I needed to go to confession for doing that. You know, it just seemed like a really irresponsible thing to do. And that's because we do have a kind of moral sense about, for example, being a good steward of the goods entrusted to us, like the good of the environment. Uh, and that is, in fact, a moral judgment. Now, the fact that we're making moral judgments becomes even more clear when you look at the criminal law, to stay with, stay with the law for a minute. Certain actions are not only forbidden by the criminal law, but they are punished, right? So the law just, just doesn't tell you to recycle. The criminal law tells you if you do this act, we will punish you. We might fine you. We might even put you in prison. Sometimes you will be punished quite severely. And this is a personal punishment, right? It is not just a neutral penalty. But you yourself will have to really bear the penalty. And that implies a judgment about the action. So the criminal law, for example, says you must not kill another person. And if you do, you will be severely punished. Why? Is the only justification for that to prevent murderers from killing in the future? Well, that certainly is part of the reason why we punish murder. We try to deter future murders. But we also punish people who we know will not do it again. And we think that that's an important function of the law, to bring someone to justice for their past actions. So if we discover that a 90-year-old committed a murder you know, 10 years earlier when he was a little more mobile, and now he's, you know, perhaps he's suffered a stroke and he's in a wheelchair or even confined to a bed, we know he's not capable of doing it again the law will still bring him to justice and issue a judgment about him, even if the judge, say, commutes the sentence and says you don't actually have to go to prison. But we would regard it as right for the legal system to judge that person because of the act in the past. That's because we're not just trying to prevent future wrongs. We actually think it's important to make a judgment about wrong actions. And the law is set up for that. In fact, I would suggest to you uh, that it is very hard to come up with an example of a law that does not make a judgment. Most laws contain implicit judgments, even if they're framed in ways that maybe don't immediately suggest it. And that is, they are suggesting, the laws are suggesting that some goods are to be done 
or some, some things are good and therefore to be protected or done, and other things are bad and therefore to be avoided. And that's the essence, according to Aquinas, of a moral judgment. So this can be hard to see in American culture because we don't usually put it this way. But in fact, this is what morality is all about. What should be done and what should not be done. Americans in particular regard the law as a moral teacher. That's a kind of, um, uh, I don't want to say totally unique aspect of our culture because you do find it in some other places, but it's a prominent aspect of our culture vis-a-vis -vis, uh, other cultures. So we tend to think that if the law permits something, it is also morally acceptable. And you can think about that vis-a-vis -vis some of the hot-button issues that the Supreme Court has decided. You know, people will generally say, or will think about it as, well, Supreme Court says that you can do this, therefore it's morally acceptable to do it. Uh, the law permits uh, you to uh, use marijuana, uh, and therefore it's morally acceptable to do that. Um, people will very quickly make that judgment. So um, this leads me to uh, what I might say is a, a capital point, the kind of conclusion of this uh, introductory section about um, what are judgments. For Thomas Aquinas, who is, I think, you know, the great philosopher and theologian uh, of the Catholic tradition, certainly of the Middle Ages, and our patron at the Thomistic Institute, for Thomas Aquinas, there is not a big difference, there is not a radical difference between the kind of act your mind makes when you judge that something exists, Fido is a dog, or Fido exists, and when we judge what is good for that being. And that means that in a certain way, grasping reality will lead us to moral judgments. So, Goldie the goldfish exists. Goldie the goldfish is alive. Goldie the goldfish fish is gold. These are all just factual statements, right? And that leads us to what we judge to be good for Goldie as a living goldfish. It is bad to flush Goldie down the toilet, right? That's not a hard judgment to make. And in fact, it's a judgment about reality, which is also a moral judgment. So the conclusion then is it's normal and in fact inevitable that we will judge some things to be good and other things to be bad. It's a part of the structure of the human mind as it has access to reality. And fundamentally, a moral judgment is about what is good and therefore should be done or sought and what is evil and therefore what should be avoided or not done. Okay, at this point, normally somebody who is uncomfortable with strong versions of moral judgments might pose an, an objection. And the objection uh, is, gosh, that sounds awfully judgy, awfully judgmental. You're judging, say, the heart of your neighbor, aren't you? Aren't you not supposed to do that? On this point, I think St. Thomas offers us some real help because he offers an account of a vice that we could label with the modern 
label of being judgmental. Although I'd want to add some caveats. Aquinas's vice, what Aquinas talks about, is called rash judgment. Okay, so Aquinas teaches that as human beings, we can judge things in the world around us, and our minds are made for that. But, he adds, we can only judge what we can see or perceive. We should not presume to judge what we cannot see. So we can judge the exterior act that someone engages in. We cannot see the interior movements of the heart of our neighbor. Okay, so the, here's a quotation from Aquinas. Man sees what appears, but the Lord beholds the heart. For to God alone is reserved the judgment of hidden things, among which especially are counted the thoughts of the heart. And hence, if anyone would presume to judge of these things, it is a rash judgment. Okay, so what is the principle there? Instead of judging our neighbor's intentions harshly, judging them in the worst light, we should presume the best about the intentions of the heart. So Aquinas thinks that it's part of the Christian virtue of charity and also just of benevolence, being friendly to people around you, that we should love our neighbors, we should presume the best of our neighbors, we should desire the good of our neighbors, and ultimately the salvation of our neighbors, which probably means, since all of us are sinners, the repentance of our neighbors. This is Lent uh, for us as Catholics. It's a time when we uh, take more seriously the call to repentance. That means examining my own conscience and admitting that I am a sinner. I stand in need of God's mercy. I am not justified of myself before God, and neither is anybody else. So actually, that's a very good position to be in, and Jesus certainly gives us, um, often teaches about this interior attitude. Say the, the, um, the sinner who goes up to the temple and lays face down and says, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. And that man is justified as compared to the, uh, the, the supposedly righteous Pharisee who simply says to God, I'm so glad I'm not like these other sinners. Okay, so there's something profoundly Christian about this attitude of not making rash judgments about the interior heart of another person. Okay, so there are two important Thomistic distinctions then about making judgments. First, when we speak the truth about sinful actions, we are primarily judging actions. Those are things that we can observe and assess. That's not the same as judging persons. To judge a person implies making a judgment about the interior movements of the heart. And that is, properly speaking, God's domain, not ours, at least insofar as we are private persons. Now here, we should add a caveat that being a judge in a criminal case, for example, does require making a judgment that punishes a person for an action and can perhaps inquire into the intention of the person doing that. But in any case, uh, for us as private persons, that's not my job to judge someone's intentions or the interior movements of the heart. If we presume to judge those interior movements without a sufficient reason, Aquinas would call it a rash judgment, which could be a sin. Okay, the second distinction is closely related to the, to the first one, which I just 
uh, giving you. That is between, on the one hand, the objective goodness or evil of an action, its objective rightness or wrongness, you could say, and on the other hand, the subjective moral culpability or guilt of the person who does the action. So the subjective guilt of the actor. So, we should always maintain that actions can be objectively right or wrong, and that actions produce a good or evil. But that even with that, there may be little or no fault on the part of the actor, depending on how the action came about. So there could be circumstances where someone does something that objectively is wrong, and we can judge that act as wrong, but they did not have much or any guilt for that action because of how that action came about or, um, or why they did it. So there's a, a rather amusing um, anecdote to illustrate this point, which is a point that perhaps you're already kind of on board with, but this, this uh, anecdote, I think, is, is uh, a good illustration. Have you heard of Douglas Adams? He was the novelist who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, so, you know, he's, uh, he's not a, a, a religious man, as far as I can tell. I think that that book is, is a rather skeptical uh, book. But he's a, he's a pretty humorous writer. Um, so I'm, I'm not really recommending uh, his philosophy, but um, some of his stuff is, is funny. Um, so he tells the following anecdote, which he, which he wrote in, um, uh, in a book, uh, a kind of memoir sort of book. Um, he was supposed to be uh, taking a train somewhere, and he made a mistake about the time his train was departing. So he was at the train station and had a whole bunch of time to kill. So to pass the time, he bought a newspaper and a cup of coffee and a packet of cookies, and he sat down at a table. So then here is uh, what he wrote about the episode. He wrote, I want you to picture the scene. Here's the table, the newspaper, the cup of coffee, the packet of cookies. There's a guy sitting opposite me, perfectly ordinary looking guy, wearing a business suit, carrying a briefcase. It didn't look like he was gonna do anything weird. What he did with, was this. He suddenly leaned across, picked up the packet of cookies, tore it open, took one out, and ate it. And I did what any red-blooded Englishman would do. I ignored it. I stared at the newspaper, took a sip of coffee, and thought, what am I going to do? In the end, I thought, nothing for it. I'll just have to go for it. And I tried very hard not to notice that the packet was already mysteriously opened. I took out a cookie for myself. I thought, that settled him. But it hadn't, because a moment or two later, he did it again. He took another cookie. And we went through the whole packet like this. He took one, I took one, he took one, I took one. Finally, when we got to the end, he stood up and walked away. Well, we exchanged meaningful looks, and then he walked away. And I breathed a sigh of relief and sat back. A moment or two later, the train was coming in, so I tossed back the rest of my coffee, stood up, picked up my newspaper, and underneath the newspaper were 
my cookies. Okay, there were in fact two packets of cookies. Objectively speaking, Adams stole the cookies of the other man. Now, if you live in a Dominican priory, stealing another man's cookies could be a very grave offense. I can tell you that. Um, especially if they're the right kind of cookies, which come around rather infrequently for us. Um, but what did the other man think about Adam's act? The other man thought that what Adams was doing was absolutely outrageous, right? It looked to him, for all the world, like a brazen, open, intentional act of theft, like in-your-face theft. And of course, that's what Adams thought the other man was doing. Was Adams guilty of theft? Well, he wasn't, because he did not realize that he was taking the other man's cookies. Now, we have to say, in justice, Adams owes this anonymous man half a packet of cookies, the cookies that he ate. So the objective evil of the act that he performed is not erased by the fact that Adams was not subjectively intending to steal. Right, do you see this distinction? It's a very important distinction. Because often people will say, oh, well he didn't intend to do an act of theft, therefore it wasn't wrong for him to do it. But that is not the right conclusion. What we wanna say is the act was wrong, objectively speaking. So he shouldn't have taken the other man's cookies, and in justice, he owes those cookies back to that man. But he's not guilty of theft because he didn't intend to commit a theft. So it's not morally culpable to have eaten the cookies, even though it was objectively wrong. Okay, the Catholic moral tradition would further distinguish at this point between ignorance or error about a fact, like I made a mistake about whether these particular cookies belong to me, and an error about the law itself. Like if you were to say, I didn't know stealing was wrong. Like I knew they were his cookies, but I didn't know it was wrong for me to take them. Um, because they are so basic, the Catholic tradition holds that uh, no one can plead ignorance of the fundamental precepts of the moral law. Things like uh, that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that theft is wrong, that lying is wrong, and so forth. So in other words, everyone is held to observe the Ten Commandments. But there could be some circumstances where, for example, it's a complicated environmental law, and you don't realize that it's against the law to do that, even though you, you fully knew what you were doing. You know, I didn't know that I was obliged to recycle my aluminum cans, um, and so I did that. Uh, so I knew what I was doing. I wasn't making a mistake, uh, but I didn't know what the law uh, told me. So there could be there could be ignorance in that case of the law might excuse the act. Okay, now we've come to the second part of the talk. And that's uh, to go beyond uh, an assessment of making judgments to moving into the claim or assessing the claim that there just are no moral truths out there or that actions cannot be morally wrong in themselves. And that requires us to talk about relativism. So relativism, relativism comes in several different varieties, and most of them 
can be find, found on contemporary college campuses. Like if you go out into the wild to the college campuses, you can identify these different species. Um, they're, not, they're not good little animals running out there. They're, they're sometimes, uh, they're morally dangerous. Um, but let's see if we can uh, name them and divide them up. Okay, there is a standard form of what is called cultural relativism, which you've probably uh, heard people espouse. It goes something like this, right and wrong, depends on what the dominant culture says. Or uh, it depends on what you are conditioned to believe by social, religious, and cultural forces. Okay, the claim there is there is no standard of right and wrong that transcends your culture. It's relative to the culture that you live in. Related to this is a claim about historical relativism. It's a slight variation on that. It says that right and wrong depends on what the mores or the moral views of a particular historical period are. So what people thought was right in the 18th century, we now see is wrong or vice versa. Okay, so to use uh, an example, an obvious example from American history, over 150 years ago, slavery was legal in the United States and was even praised by some people as positively good, whereas today, you can hardly find anyone who would deny that it's gravely wrong. And thanks be to God for that, it is gravely wrong. Uh, but that's obviously a very big change. So a phenomenon like that is posited as evidence that there are no claims to moral rightness or wrongness that transcend a given historical period. Okay, another form of relativism you can find in law schools, it's called legal positivism. It holds that right and wrong depends on what the positive law says. So when lawmakers make a law saying that X is forbidden, then it becomes morally wrong to do it. And if the lawmakers change that law, then it becomes morally right to do it. Not all forms of legal positivism are quite as, as strongly relativistic as that, but some, some forms of it tend in that, in that direction. So all of these views assert that there is no unchanging, non-arbitrary standard of right and wrong, and that all moral claims are relative to culture or historical context or language or legal regime, etc. So can we make any kind of answer to this, uh, this kind of claim about relativism? So let me give you four quick replies to the claims of moral relativism. So these are like four reasons why moral relativism doesn't work. So the first, the fatal flaw of all forms of relativism is that they contain an internal contradiction. They assert that the proposition that there are no truths that hold always and everywhere is a truth that holds always and everywhere. So that's, that's what philosophers call a problem of self-reference. So you cannot apply that claim to itself. It's, it's self-contradictory, and in fact, it's incoherent. So technically speaking, it's like a meaningless uh, claim because it, it negates itself. And all forms of relativism uh, really have this hiding in them somewhere, if you look hard enough. Okay, the second answer. While there might be some superficial evidence that seems to support 
say, cultural or historical relativism. For example, that there have been disagreements across cultures or historical periods about some particular moral questions, like slavery or polygamy or homosexuality or something like that. Okay? You can, you can identify places where those moral, uh, those acts may have been judged differently. The relativist argument ignores the much broader and deeper agreement about moral principles that you find really across uh, many, many, I mean, I think you could say um, all times and, and all cultures. Okay, third uh, argument. Why should the fact that some people, or even some cultures, have made excuses for things that are gravely wrong, why should that lead us to conclude that there are no such thing as morally wrong things? Okay, so the, the relativist argument can sometimes go like, well, that guy over there said that it wasn't wrong for him to have slaves. Why should we then conclude that it isn't wrong to have slaves? Or that there is no actual uh, truth of the matter about that? And that's, in a way, what the relativist argument is trying to do, just on a broader context, using historical periods or cultural contexts. In addition, we should not conflate the moral status of social or cultural conventions for example, uh, in some cultures, belching at the table is very rude. But in other cultures, belching at the table is a necessary part of etiquette, right? Okay, that's obviously culturally conditioned and depends on cultural circumstance. Uh, but we shouldn't con confuse those kinds of judgments about right and wrong you know, it's right to belch at the table, it's wrong to belch at the table, with deeper moral principles, like to directly and intentionally kill an innocent person is wrong. Okay, these are not the same kinds of judgments. One is more easily identifiable, it's kind of obviously identifiable, as a convention of a particular context, like a po particular polite society, while the other is a moral truth that applies always and everywhere. In fact, the relativist argument deliberately obscures distinctions between these two kinds of judgments in order to claim that some moral censures from the past were merely conventional, and because we can also find some examples of socially sanctioned wrongdoing Therefore, there are no enduring moral principles. So you kind of put those two things together and you get the relativist uh, argument. All right, fourth theoretical argument against moral relativism. And we're, we're coming towards the end here. The relativist needs to be able to claim that not only is one sometimes determined by your historical period or your culture, but that one is always determined by your historical period or culture. Because according to the relativist, all moral claims are historically or culturally conditioned. But that seems to be plainly false. So we see all the time that people challenge 
moral wrongs in their own culture. And they do so by appealing to universal moral principles. So think, for example, of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King objected to racial segregation, which was legal in the South when he was, when he was making the objection. Legal and advocated for by, some, by the dominant culture, you might say, the majority culture. And how did he make the argument? He said, this is unjust. And he appealed to the consciences of the majority to recognize that their practice had been deformed by a sinful structure in the culture. And he was right to do that. The fact that, some, that that is possible suggests that we are not just determined by our surrounding culture. It's possible to stand over against our culture and make a judgment about it based on universal principles. And that is a kind of proof that moral relativism isn't true. You are not simply conditioned by your, uh, your surrounding culture. You can be to some degree, but not absolutely. Okay, these are theoretical arguments, but I'd like to add a fifth point about why moral relativism doesn't work. Uh, I want to argue that in practice, there are no moral relativists, no true or absolute moral relativists. Even moral relativism itself makes a moral judgment, which it tries very hard to camouflage as something else. But it makes a moral judgment about all the judgmental people out there who believe in absolute moral truths. And I think actually in our time, the camouflage is starting to uh, get pretty thin. Like it becomes more and more evident that by saying don't judge, you are in fact making a judgment and often a very strong moral judgment. Now that's unsurprising to a Thomist, to a disciple of St. Thomas Aquinas, because according to St. Thomas, moral judgments are judgments about what is good. And there is an unbreakable link between being and goodness. So this is, in a way, the deepest philosophical point that I'm making in the talk. Insofar as something exists, it is good. To be is good. And so our moral judgments are tied to judgments about reality. So in fact, you cannot escape this and no moral relativist will be able to avoid making moral judgments. We should not be surprised that there are moral judgments hiding behind accusations of being judgmental. Because to make judgments is a part of what it means to be rational. So in reality, there are no, and there could not really be, practical relativists. We make judgments all the time, including moral judgments, and we make them on principles that transcend culture, history, language, legal system, and so forth. And the only real question is whether we will camouflage these judgments in the rhetoric of relativism, or even to our own self-awareness, like we may not be aware of the degree to which we are being judgmental, or we will bring them out into the open where they can be assessed and discussed. And that's where I think they really need to be in a civil society because it's the essence of civil society to be able to discuss openly what is good for our community. What is good for a human person? What is a human person and what leads to human flourishing? So I'd like to conclude with uh, um, 
some, uh, with a quotation from uh, John Paul II. So Pope John Paul II taught about the danger of relativism, the monstrous human cost of it, and he lived this in his own life experience. So he lived in Poland under two infamous totalitarian regimes. He lived under the Nazis, and he lived under Soviet communism. And he wrote this about totalitarianism. Totalitarianism arises out of a denial of truth in the objective sense. If there is no transcendent truth in obedience to which man achieves his full identity, then there is no sure principle for guaranteeing just relations between people. Think about that. He says if there's no objective truth, then you cannot find just relations between people. So he goes on. Their self-interest as a class, a group, or a nation would inevitably set them in opposition to one another. If one does not acknowledge transcendent truth, then the force of power takes over, and each person tends to use, to, tends to make full use of the means at his disposal in order to impose his own interests or his own opinion with no regard for the rights of others. In other words, a crisis of truth leads to a crisis of democracy, and ultimately to a crisis of freedom. And I think that's quite prophetic, because in the absence of any objective truth, you can no longer make an argument to persuade another. You can only make an appeal to power. That's his claim. So to safeguard the integrity of our judgment of the truth, is actually also to safeguard the possibility of a free democratic society. And that is why Pope Benedict XVI later spoke about what he called a dictatorship of relativism. So in the end, if you adopt relativism, you will be forced into a dynamic that is not governed by reason. And without rational discourse, there can only be appeals to ideology or to political power, but not appeals to the truth. There will still be judgments there, because that's inevitable, but they will not be subjected to rational analysis, but they will be imposed by acts of will or by acts of power. And I would suggest to you that that kind of dynamic is inimical to the nature of the university itself. The university does not exist to serve an ideology or to serve power. It exists for the sake of pursuing knowledge of the reality around us, knowledge of the truth. And that is what the human mind is made for, to know the truth. And from that truth, freedom springs. As our Lord says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free.